This morning's Bible reading comes from Ezra chapter 3. We're going to read the whole of Ezra chapter 3. If you've got um, one of the church Bibles, you can find it starting on page 375. Or if you've got your phone, open up to Ezra um, chapter 3. <clears throat> but before I read, we're going to pray. Let's pray together. <coughs> Heavenly Father, Please quiet our hearts and our minds now, Lord. Um, turn them to you. Lord, we thank you for your scriptures handed down to us. And, Lord, as we read your words together and help and hear your word preached to us, please speak to us, teach us, shape us, Lord, to be more like you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Ezra chapter 3. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled into their towns and the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem, then Joshua, son of Jozadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of the tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. <coughs> Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorised by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josedach, and the rest of the people the priests and the Levites and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem began the work. They appointed Levites 20 years old and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers and Cam Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Henadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good, his love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. 
No one could distinguish the sound of shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. fantastic isn't it when your whole family are behaving nicely with each other on their best behavior looking out for one another caring for each other speaking nicely it's just it's almost heavenly isn't it and if we're honest with ourselves it's usually only momentary it's short-lived what we see in the passage we're looking at today is God's people in one of their better moments when they're behaving themselves when they're doing everything right being nice to each other and so on. But the main thing that is particularly special is that at this point they're doing everything they can to live according to the word of their powerful God. They're doing things right. It's a shining example of living in obedience to God's word with God's word as the priority, what God wants as the priority. So we're picking up in Ezra after those two miracles that I showed you in chapter one last week. Back in chapter one, Um, You saw in 1 verse 1, God moved in the heart of Cyrus, moved in the heart of Cyrus and caused him to plan to make, to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, moved in Cyrus that way. That was the first miracle. Um, Then the second miracle was in verse 5, where God moved in the heart of his people and caused them to want to go back to start this rebuilding work of the temple in Jerusalem. And then you look at how chapter 2 ends. So the end of chapter 2 goes in verse 70, the priests the Levites, the musicians, the gatekeepers, the temple servants settled down in their own towns along with some of the people and the rest of the Israelites settled in their towns. They've come back to their homeland, a bit of a mess that it was, back to their homeland. They've started resetting everything up again, making themselves at home, settling in. And then you read in chapter 3, verse 1, when the seventh month came. That seventh month just needs a little bit of explaining because it's the first indication in this chapter that the people are actually following God's word. It's the first indication that they're doing what God would want them to do, living in the way that God would want them to live. Um, You know how as Queenslanders we've resisted that whole daylight saving thing? Um, It makes life simple for us. We only have one, one time zone to think in terms of one calendar, one time zone. But for the Israelites, it's not so simple. They have two time zones, two calendars to be thinking in terms of. They've got the Persian ruler over them and they've got to live according to what the Persian ruler wants. Then they've also got the law of Moses recorded in the Old Testament, which has another calendar, another time zone. The seventh month was a significant month in the Moses law, Jewish calendar. It was a significant time. My point is, even if they'd only been home for a month, even if they've only just set up their home, even if they've only been back in Jerusalem for a very short period of time, when that seventh month rolled around, it's like when July rolls around, this is what they did. So that little bit of explaining helps you see these people, they're actually being obedient to God's word at this point. Three verse one, when the seventh month came, the Israelites had settled down in their towns. The people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. They assembled they churched together as one people in jerusalem they downed tools to follow the prescribed law of moses um what we're seeing is these people of israel at their best on their best behavior so many other things could have made them want to stay at home i mean 
They've only just been home for a little while. They've got the kids into school finally. They've signed them up for soccer and for netball. Um, they've had a housewarming. They want to meet their neighbours. All these reasons to stay at home. They might have bought a new field or have a wedding to go to. So many reasons not to church, not to assemble as one people in Jerusalem. Um, they might have a wedding to go to or maybe maybe it's council pickup time and they want to you know, pick up some stuff and take it home to the kibbutz to make themselves comfortable. So many reasons not to assemble, but the seventh month rolls around and they say no to the grandkids' party and they come along to Jerusalem and assemble in one place. These people, um, they're prioritising God and his word and living in a way that is in accordance with the Old Testament law. They put normal life on hold to assemble or to church in one place. Another thing to ponder here in chapter 3 is that the people, they built this altar before they even lay the foundation for the new temple. It's a little bit of an odd way to do things. I mean, the engineer in here just goes, what were they thinking? I mean, now you've got this obstacle in the, on the building site. You've got this tape around it saying, you know, don't go near that thing. Um, yeah, when you backhoe, you're going to have to do that little bit by hand around the altar so you don't disturb things. When you're carrying your wood through the work site, you've got to deviate around. Why would you build the altar before you lay the foundation? It's a kind of an odd way to do things. Or is it? The people, they're prioritising offering sacrifices to God over getting this job done, aren't they? They're prioritising their relationship with God, doing the things that God wants them to do. They're dropping everything else to follow the commands of Moses. It makes the point of that in the passage. So verse 2 underlines it for us, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses. And down in verse 4 it says again, in accordance with what was written, these people, they prioritise living by God's rules, living by God's law. They prioritise that, living in a way that's pleasing to God, and that meant offering sacrifices, the prescribed sacrifices for the seventh month. It meant putting into practice the stuff we saw in Leviticus and Numbers last year. Prioritising living by God's word means taking care to offer the sacrifices that God has asked to be sacrificed to him. Can you see how the Israelites, their behaviour here, it's exemplary, really, isn't it? This is Israel at their best. God saved them, brought them back again to the land that he'd given, given them, and here they are endeavouring to live in a way that's pleasing to God. And as we look at it, um, I think it ought to motivate us too. We're New Testament Christians, I know that, but as you look at these Old Testament people of God and the way that they want to live to God, for God, it's, it's encouraging. It motivates us. Um, we want to be putting God first in everything, putting his word and what he wants above everything else, even when it means making decisions that appear to be, you know, stupid, like the altar before you build um, the building, even when it means making decisions which have nothing to do with making ourselves comfortable, when it means making inconvenient decisions. We're more concerned about pleasing God. So when we do things like block out Sunday mornings, in a busy weekend because we see it's important to meet with God's people. It's just one of those signs that we are prioritising God and what he wants. We make financial sacrifices because we know that we're only stewards for a time of what God has generously given us. We open our homes and our lives and serve our brothers and sisters in Christ at great cost to ourselves because we know that that is what God wants us to do. We sacrifice time to read the Bible and pray together, to teach the kids and capture kids because 
That's the priority. And as we look at these Israelites and what they did, yeah, it should motivate us, I think, to live in a way which is pleasing to God as well. And verse 3 is interesting because it says they offered sacrifices despite their fear of the nations. There's a bit of a, a trick in the, the, the Hebrew. Hebrew is one of those languages where context is everything. There's just a bit of you know, movement in, in, the, in the, the way the words are, are put together. So it could be saying um, they did this because of their fear of the nations or despite their fear of the nations. But the point is, who cares what they're doing out there? We're here offering our sacrifices to God, despite what other people think, or despite the fact that it might be making us stick out like a sore thumb. That in itself is more motivation for us, I reckon, not to fear what others may think, not to fear what others may say, as we set about serving our great God. We prioritise living for him. That's what matters more than anything else. There's more details in verses 1 to 6 that you should see. So look again at verse 1. Um, when the seventh month came, I've pointed out that's the, the Jewish seventh month. That's the Old Testament law that they're thinking of here, the law that God gave through Moses, all these sacrifices that should be offered. It's the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns and the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem, then jo Joshua, son of jo Josadak, and his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, son of Shiltil, and his associates began to build the altar of, of God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Um, this is the seventh month. If you look down at verse 6, there's the other bookend to this. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Just underlining again, these people are obeying the commands that God gave through Moses, which you'll actually see if you look at Numbers chapter 29. When you turn to Numbers chapter 29, it lists what should be done on the seventh month, or in the seventh month. The offerings um, made include the, the, the sacrifices of atonement. Remember when we looked at Leviticus and Numbers, that the Sunday school definition of atonement, the atonement, you offer the sacrifice to appease God's wrath at sin, to deal with your sin so that you can be at one with God again. These sacrifices of atonement deal with sin in that way for a time. Um, if you keep reading in Numbers 29, there's also this week-long festival of tabernacles or festival of booths or festival of tents when they all set themselves up in tents for a week and have feasting and offer sacrifices every single day. It's all there in Numbers 29. That's what these people are doing in Jerusalem as one man, one person, one people. Um, Ezra 3 verse 4 says that's what they did. So 3 verse 4, then in accordance with what was written, they celebrated the festival of the tabernacles or the booths with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. This is, as I'm saying, Israel at their best, the family on their best manners, best behaviour, and their behaviour is marked by the fact that they're prioritising God and his word above everything else. And the lesson for us, I reckon, is to prioritise God's word in every way in our lives too. If you draw this line between what it means for them and what it might mean for us, we don't have sacrifices to offer. Jesus is the once for all sacrifice for sin. For us, as you draw that line, you come to Romans 12 that the kids are looking out at, out in Cape Sea Kids, Romans 12, where what we do is we offer, offer a sacrifice of praise and thanks. We offer our lives to God. That's our appropriate response to everything God has done. 
So that's Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. The rest of the chapter then focuses on the laying of the foundations for the temple. And as you look at these verses, you realise actually, yeah, the temple has a very important place in God's plans. Um, God revealed his plans to Abraham. He called Abraham out. He said he'd make him into a great nation, give him the land, bless his generations. It's this idea of God having his people, his nation, his prized possession in his place, the place he gives them and chooses for them, living under his rule, his people in his place under his rule. It's a, a plan that doesn't change. That is God's plan. And here in the Old Testament, we see the shadow of what we have in the, in the New Testament. And in the shadow, you see the importance of the temple. God called his people out of Egypt, saved them from slavery, gathered them around him at Mount Sinai and gave instructions to Moses to build that tent, that tabernacle, the tent where he would dwell among his people, the outer court where the the, the altar was and the the inner and the most holy place with the Ark of the Covenant. And when God did that, he dwelt among his people. You saw the cloud during the day, the fire at night, Um. Once the people entered the land of Canaan, conquered all their enemies, had their king over them, it was Solomon who built a temple, which was just like the tabernacle, more permanent. Same idea. The temple had this important place in God's plans for his people. And as we come to Ezra, the people have been in exile for a generation. Um, In Ezra chapter 3, verses 7 to 13, we're being told about the way they've now come back to rebuild the temple. Remember those two miracles in chapter 1? Just glance back, 1 verse 1, God moved in the heart of Cyrus to build a temple to Yahweh in Jerusalem. In in 1 verse 5, God moved in the heart of his people to cause them to go back to build a temple to him. It's the temple that's important in his plans. So rebuilding the the temple um, means it's this way of showing this way that God dwells among his people, God's people, God's place under his rule, God among them represented by this temple. Ezra 3 verse 7, the people begin um, lining up all the equipment they need. Um, I guess they use some of the the money that was collected in chapter 2 verses 68 and 69. And you read in verse 7, then they gave money to the the masons and carpenters that gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorised by Cyrus, the king of Persia. It's taken, when you look at the timing, look in verse 8, it's taken over two years to get to this point, but the building is underway. The foundation is coming together. Um, But then they're down tools again. If you look in verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and the uh, vestments with with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, the king of David, uh, by David, the king of Israel. Um, the people, they down tools again. They drop everything. They stop their work so that they can praise Yahweh, praise God. It's yet another reminder that to these people, it's more important to be acknowledging God, more important to be praising God than to keep doing the work that they're doing. Um, verse 11 gives you this snapshot of what they said as they praise God. It says, he is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. He is good, God is good, and his love, his covenant love, his covenant commitment towards Israel goes on forever. If you look at those words and think about what they're saying, they're not trying to win God's favour here by their good works. They're praising God for who he is and his character, what he's done for them, the ways they've seen his love shown for them. 
It's God who saved them. It's God who brought them back again. They're praising God for his covenant faithfulness and keeping his promises. They're not trying to earn anything from God as they praise him. Um, and their praise is loud. It says, and all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And if you look at the end of verse 13, the sound was heard a long way away. I don't know if you've um, ever been to uh, a stadium and watched the wave work its way around and all the noise that goes with it. There was once we were in Sydney on one of those times when the English were over and it was a, a dead game and they gave free entry. We went, oh, why not? Let's go to the cricket. And it was fun listening to the Barmy Army, all their chants and stuff. If you can think about that magnified a thousand times, this was heard a long way away. This is a lot of noise, happy noise, it sounds like, praising God for his faithfulness. But then look at verse 12. What do you make of it? But many of the older priests, the Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being um, being laid while many others shouted for joy. Is that just, you know, the old grumpy ones? Is that what that is? Why are they weeping, these people? Verse 13 goes, no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping. Are they weeping with joy? I don't think so. That doesn't fit the context, does it? And the way it clarifies it, contrasts it with those who are shouting with joy. This is tears of sadness, not grumpiness, sadness. Um, Every time I've looked at this passage in the past, I've just thought, you know, maybe it's because the new temple has just got nothing on the old. That's the engineer's sort of view on that. But if you think a little bit deeper, there's other reasons to be upset, aren't there? I mean, these are the ones who they saw the previous temple. So they're, they're, you know, 70 plus years old. They're the generation that saw what was, and now what is lived through the whole exile, that would make you sad, the exile, realising that you were sent away by God as punishment from God. That would make you want to weep. You see the new temple being put together and you just think back over the mess that sin has made. That's something to be sad about. Or maybe they were thinking about the loss of the temple in the first place. The re- that Maybe that's why they're weeping, as they see the new temple being put together. Or maybe... There's this realisation that where's the ark? Where's that? And just the loss, and this is never going to be the same. The consequences of sin are huge. The consequences um, of not living by God's word roll on. So while we see in this chapter the people of Israel at their best doing everything to live according to God's word, these older ones can see the mess that's been made by not living by God's word. Even in a time of praise, the reality of sin is mixed in with it. Um, The joy is mixed with sadness. So here in the Old Testament, um, we know, as we read it, as New Testament Christians, we know that sin's not finally dealt with. Yes, this is a good day for for Israel because they're wanting to live by God's word, but the problem that causes them not to, it's not finally dealt with until Jesus comes. So in verse 12, we see a reminder that points our eyes ahead to Jesus. We see that. But these people on that day, wondering what God's going to do about sin, maybe that's another reason to be weeping at that point. Um, We're not Old Testament Jews. We're New Testament Christians. Um, We know as we look at this, we don't need a temple. We don't need a temple like that. Um, But still, 
what we see in Ezra chapter 3 is instructive for us because God is working to the same plan. This idea of God dwelling among his people, it's still God's plan. And so we put this, we put our New Testament um, glasses on, we look back at this. Let me remind you of a few things that you'll find in the New Testament. So, for example, in John chapter 2, um, Jesus says, destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. And with hindsight, the disciples understand he's actually talking about his body, his death, the way of bringing access into God's presence, the way that God will dwell among us in a new way. In Revelation, um, John says, as he sees this vision of the, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, there's no temple in it. You don't need a temple because it's all about God and his son, Jesus. That's how we fellowship or tabernacle with God. And then you look at um, the passage, a passage from um, Ephesians, which we looked at recently in church. I'll, I'll read this bit. So Ephesians 2 verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. As we wait for Jesus to return, as we wait for heaven where we'll be gathered around Jesus in his presence, as we wait for that, we're temple building in effect, aren't we? We're working out building God's church with people. You can see these you know, parallels to Ezra 2 where they're rebuilding the temple back there. We've got this task too of building God's temple, seeing other people come to know God. And as we are involved in that, like the people in Ezra 3, we need to be quick to down tools, to praise God, to acknowledge God. It's the covenant relationship with God that matters more than anything else. Our priority should always be God and his word, doing what's pleasing to him. It's our relationship with our covenant-keeping God that is our biggest priority. So as you think about it that way, how are we going, do you think? How are we going as Christ's church in Kenmore? And how are you going at prioritising your relationship with our great God? Ezra 3 shows us people who... They're having a good day. They're at their best. They're earnestly trying to live by the word of our powerful God. Our powerful God, who you saw back in chapter 1, is unfailingly faithful and supremely sovereign. I reckon let's pray that as New Testament Christians, we would be living for God in everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the incredible way that you've made it possible for us sinners to be able to come into your presence through Jesus' death in our place. Lord, we pray that we would be encouraged and inspired by the people of Israel in Ezra 3. Lord, we pray that we would make living by your word the priority in our lives. And, Father, we pray for us as a church, as we seek to build your church. Please help us to be faithful workers. And, Lord, we pray that um, Jesus would return that we would be able to enjoy being around you in heaven. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.